this morning. Since I'm here, we'll continue. We are so excited to share with you this morning about how God surprises us with God's power. We've been studying all summer about how we become surprised by God. And today we're talking about how we are surprised by God's power in our lives, how often we doubt that power, but that power shows up when we need it most. Now, this morning I want to take just a moment before we dig into the message and share with you that there is one thing we don't want you to be surprised about at Concord United Methodist Church, and that is church finances. We do all in our power to be as transparent as possible with our church finances and to help you know how we have policies and people in place to try to be the very best stewards of every resource given so that we can maximize ministry. That's why I want to give you an update we just got from our financial team, our financial numbers for halfway through the year after we closed the books for June. And what, what we're finding this year is that church finances in most years ebb and flow. The typical church year starts with a huge surplus in January. Uh, as many people make their gift for the entire year in January, it, that surplus holds steady through the spring, giving dips in the summer. Sometime in the fall, churches will hit black or, or excuse me, will, will be even or even hit red numbers. And then the November and December, giving comes roaring back and we finish with a moderate surplus, which is put away for a rainy day when lightning strikes the church and knocks out all our electrical systems or something to, to that occasion. This year, we found that we hit the red numbers in June rather than in September. So we wanted to talk to you about that and why that occurred. Uh, as we've analyzed the numbers, I want you to know we do not have a ministry problem. Uh, this year, we are averaging 80 more people in worship on a Sunday than uh, we did last year. And that is entirely made up of uh, the increase of those who are present. Our Online attendance has actually dipped slightly, but our in-person attendance is up over 100 people a Sunday. And with that, as you would imagine, our participation in small groups and missions ministries and children and student ministries has followed suit. I also want you to know we do not have a declining generosity pro problem. You have given slightly more to the church this year than last year. What we have is an inflation problem which is a problem we all have in our own homes as well. Inflation has risen by more than our giving has risen. Uh, inflation hit the church particularly hard. 2022 uh, into 2023 is the fastest we have grown as a church in the, in the last decade. But to do ministry in 2022 like we did it in 2023 would be a 14% increase because of how inflation has affected the church. We cut almost half of that increase out before the year, and we have cut more of that out through the year. But if we don't make some changes now, we might get to a, a place in December where we're not able to catch up. So we're asking you to help us with those. We want you to know that we are uh, cutting, we are practicing cost control and cutting all but, but the essential things that's needed to keep our ministries moving forward. We also want you to know that there's something you can do. 
Maybe you ha- are new to the church and you weren't raised in church. You haven't practiced generously giving to the church as part of your Christian faith. This is a wonderful time to start. It is not only something that helps the church's ministries. It is something that helps us grow closer to God. Could you consider giving $25 a week? Or could you consider giving $25 a week more than you are currently giving? If all the, not even all the people, but if all the families in our church gave $25 more a week for the rest of the year, uh, we would finish uh, with a surplus with all our ministries fully supported. Or maybe you're at a place where giving generously has been a part of your witness and your faith for quite some time, and you even make a pledge to the ministry budget each year to help the church plan Could you consider increasing your pledge by 8%, which is basically where inflation has affected the church, to help us continue our ministries going forward? I want you to know that my wife and I called Lori Hopper, our business manager, this week and increased our pledge by 8%. So if you'd like to to give, if you'd like to make an initial pledge, you can do that at concordunited.org slash give. If you'd like to update your pledge or get more information, you can contact Lori Hopper. You can see how to do so on the screen. She's our business manager. And if you want more detailed information about our finances, I would encourage you, make sure you're on our emailing list. I emailed more details to our congregation this Friday. You can check out that email. Also, if you'd like someone who can really take you line by line about how every penny impacts ministry, please contact Lori Hopper. She loves to do that. And we we want you to know that we can and will uh, go forward. We will overcome this challenge and we will continue uh, spreading ministry and spreading the gospel in, in this community. This church was founded in 1865. This church made it through the Great Depression and the Great Recession. We have seen inflation before and we have responded and we will do so together again. Since I've been at this church, I've been told repeatedly, whenever this, there's a challenge, this church rises to it. And so we will continue uh, this strong ministry together. Now, I want to share with you today from the scriptures about how we can be surprised by God's power. As often as we see God's power, as much as we might claim to intellectually know about God's power, when it enters your life, it's always surprising. I had the experience this week of being reminded of how surprising that power could be. Uh, I was able to go last night to Chattanooga, Tennessee uh, to gather at a reunion of sorts with many of my former high school co- or high school football players. We, we were on the team together and we were celebrating one of our coaches who was now retiring. At, at the time, he, he looked so much older than us and now he doesn't look that much older than us. We were, and, and for me, high school athletics was a lot of fun. I was so thankful I had the opportunity to be a part of it. I learned about hard work and teamwork. For many of my teammates, high school athletics was their only chance. It was their only chance to get a college education if somehow they could find a way into, into a scholarship. And one young man stood up and shared about how he thought his life was, was a dead end and he would never find his way out of the neighborhood he lived in, which was just filled with drugs and violence. And then this coach came along and said, just show up. We'll find a way. We will pick you up at your home. Just keep showing up and we're going to find a way for, for you to have the life that, that you want if you'll just work hard. And then uh, another young man shared how he thought his dreams were crushed uh, when he was injured. 
and he wasn't sure if he'd be able to play again. And how at 3 a.m. that night in the hospital, the coach came beside him and said, you just have to trust God. You just have to trust that God will make, make a way. And God has made a, a, a way in his life. But we're, we get to moments in life where we're not sure how God can. And this is why I'd like to encourage all of you, if you're not doing so already, please read your Bible every day. Please pray every day because we need it. Because we need that reminder that God can and will make a way where we see no way. Uh, you, we have a Bible reading plan here at the church that takes you through a short passage of Scripture each day that ties into the sermon from Sunday. You can find a copy at the Information Center if you'd like one that's printed out. You can also get one digitally online at concordunited.org Bible. And there at concordunited.org Bible, you can find a daily devotion in email or podcast form that will take you deeper into the scripture and give you a focus for your prayer life so that you can be reminded each day of God's power. Because this world often tells us to look for power in places that ultimately don't have enough power for what we need. I was reminded of this a, a few years ago. I was talking to a mother who had a student in our uh, teenage student ministries, and we were waiting for the event to, to end so we could bring, bring our students home. And that particular summer, it seemed like all the hit songs on the top 40 on the radio were girl power anthems. And we were kind of talking about these songs, and I have a daughter, and she liked some of the songs. And I, w I was saying how it was kind of neat, and then she looked at me, and she said, you know, these songs make me really worry for our young women. And I said, oh, what? why is that? And she said, well, do you want your daughter finding her primary power in life just simply in the fact that she has two X chromosomes? Or do you want her finding her power in the fact uh, that she has a God who's always with her? And as a pastor who felt like he should have thought of that first, <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, we, we have all these other places we look to for our power. Uh, we, we look for our power in our gender, in our race, in our wealth, in our nationality, and if you, there are some good things about all of those, but if you find your power entirely there, it's just, it, it's, it's just not enough. This summer, if you go to the movies, you will see a phenomenon. You will see the movie theater filled with people walking around in neon pink dresses because they are going to see the Barbie movie. And what isn't it amazing? I don't know how many of you have seen it. It actually provides a fairly thoughtful, perhaps starts some important conversations and provides a thoughtful commentary on gender roles and, and the way we are in our society and even the way we are in our souls. I'm not going to give away the, the entirety of the movie, but I just want to tell you a little bit about Ken. So <laughs> Ken uh, begins the movie living in Barbie land. And in Barbie land, Ken is a second-class citizen. He's treated well, uh, but he is purely an accessory to Barbie. He exists for no other reason than to help Barbie. Then Ken gets a glimpse of the real world, and he recognizes how sometimes in the real world, men are placed above women. And instead of thinking, 
I know what it's like to be on the bottom. It it wouldn't be right for me to be on the top. We should all figure out a way to use the gifts God's given us to live with equality. Ken says, that's right. This is messed up. We shouldn't be on the bottom. We should be on the top. And he tries to start a rebellion and eventually has to learn a, a, a little bit more. How often do we see that? How often do we see those that have been oppressed, when they come to power, they act just like the people who had previously oppressed them? How often do we try to draw our power from places that just can't provide it? I want to ask you today, are you drawing your power from a shallow well that will eventually run dry? Because we see people uh, who draw their power from their race, and who even think of their race as better than other races. That's a well that's going to run dry, uh, and we see that with all races. It's not exclusive to one or the other thinking they're better. Uh, we, we see that in terms of wealth. Sometimes uh, we think we're better than others because we have more, and actually sometimes we think we're better than others because we have less. We see that sometimes not only are we proud of our country and wanting to do everything we can to support our country, uh, but we see throughout the world people who think that people of other countries are of less sacred worth and inherent value. If you're finding your identity in any of those things or a host of others, eventually, if that's your primary source of power, the well's going to run dry. So where do we find a power source with a well that won't run dry? Well, Paul tells us about this in his second letter to the Corinthians. And he says something very interesting here, something we don't like to hear, something counterintuitive. He says, many people walk around wondering why God allows sin and suffering to take place. Paul says it's actually in moments of sin and suffering that you find a power source from God uh, that will see you through uh, whatever this life can bring at you. I want, I want you to hear how Paul describes this in his, the 12th chapter of his second letter to the church at Corinth. He's talking about how he has been given these visions, these revelations of God that have been so great that they have transformed his life and uh, inspired his soul. And then he says this, in verse 7. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Did, did you hear what he said? He said, when I am weak, when I, then I am strong. He said, God's power is made perfect in our weakness, even in our times of failure, in our times of suffering. That's when we come to learn God's power in a way that we could not otherwise and gain a confidence that whatever this life brings at us, God's power will be enough for us. Isn't it funny that when you feel the weakest, you have a chance to be the strongest? What we discover is that feeling powerful isn't the same thing as being powerful. 
Now, I can demonstrate this. I want to speak for a moment to all the gentlemen in this room who are over the age of 30. If you're a man over the age of 30, do you remember what it felt like to be 17? Do you remember what it felt like to have that metabolism? Do you remember what it felt like to get out of bed and not have to stretch your back or make sure that your ankles were working? Do you, do you remember what it felt like to think that it was just your birthright to wake up every day and be bigger and stronger and faster than you were the day before? When you're a 17-year-old guy, if you're in good health, it's easy to feel invincible. And yet... When we look at death rate statistics, for men, the death rate goes dramatically up, well higher uh, than in previous years and well higher than the death rate for women during the ages between 15 and 24. Now, why does the death rate for men go up during the ages when often men feel the most physically powerful and invincible? You guessed it. It's the same reason you can't rent a car till you're 25. Because you feel invincible. And when you feel invincible, you tend to do things that cause you to prove to yourself that you're not invincible. And so often it can cause you to drive a car too fast and get in a fatal accident. Or it causes you to engage in violence uh, that ultimately takes your life. Most men who lose their lives between 15 and 24 do so in rather violent ways. Right as you feel the most powerful, sometimes you're the most vulnerable. So we have to look somewhere else for our power. And we have to ask ourselves, do we, do you really know you will have the strength for whatever life brings you? Knowing there are things in the future that you can't anticipate that will be harder than you could have imagined, do you know you have the strength for life when it comes that way? Because Jesus showed us that power and strength. He showed us a power that was great enough for any suffering life could bring when he walked to the cross. And not just a power to endure the suffering, but to endure it perfectly. Many people sadly have suffered physically to the same degree as Christ. No one has suffered perfectly as Christ suffered and suffered with perfect love in the midst and forgiveness as well. No one has suffered like him and at the same time can continued perfect love for the Jews who conspired against him, for the, the Romans who unjustly convicted him, for the disciples who betrayed him, for the soldiers who tortured him. None of us have done that. No one has done that, but he has that power and that power that he offers us. And counterintuitively, we find that power Sometimes we experience it the most directly in seasons of sin and suffering. Because these seasons teach us that even in our failures and even in our anguish, that God is enough and that God can provide even in those moments. And that gives us a joy and a peace that's hard to describe because we know whatever the other moments that may come, that God will be enough for those moments as well. Now, when Paul describes to the Corinthians his sin and suffering, he uses rather symbolic language. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. 
And he does not describe what that thorn in the flesh is. Now, if I could speak to Paul, I would want to say to him, Mr. Apostle, we appreciate you. You're a fine author. We appreciate all you've written. But you often use this flowery symbolic language. I understand that was part of your culture. In our culture, we appreciate honesty and authenticity. Can you please tell us, sir, what that thorn is? We're tired of you hiding it from us. We'd like to know. I don't believe, however, that the reason Paul does not tell us what his thorn in the flesh was to be because he was ashamed of it, because he wanted to look good and not confess what his weakness was. I think the reason he doesn't say it comes from the wisdom of God, because God knows how we are. And if Paul's thorn in the flesh had been a physical ailment, if we did not have that ailment, we would, we would look at Paul and we would say, well, it can't really be as bad as what you're describing. Or if we had had that ailment, uh, we, we would say, say to Paul, well, I've had that too. Who are you to tell me how to handle it? Or some of us would say, oh, I, oh Mr. Paul, I've had something much worse than that. Let, let, me, tell, let me tell you about it. And some of us who don't have the best manners, we'd say, oh, I've got something going on right now that's bad as that. Let me show you. <laughs> You've been around those people too, huh? Or if it was a sin, a weakness, a persistent temptation, if we didn't have that temptation ourselves, we, we would say, I can't believe him. That man, how could he? Or if we had that temptation ourselves, we'd simply go, well, you're no better than me. Who are you to talk to me about it? So we don't know. We don't know. What we do know was how he suffered. We know that he had illnesses. We know that he was beaten. He was abused. He was arrested. He was shipwrecked. He knew plenty of suffering. And oh, by the way, in his previous life, he was guilty of hate crimes, including murder. He also knew plenty of sin. And what we find here is he said, it's in this moment that I find God's power. Because in that moment, uh, when maybe you can't even forgive yourself, you need a God who forgives you. And it's in that moment when the suffering is too great for you to get through based on simply the power of positive thinking. You need a God who suffered. You need a God who knows about suffering deeper than your suffering, who will be there for you. You see, the world will tell you to look for power two places. The world will tell you to look for power either within yourself. Uh, we've talked about the problem Ken had with that today. Uh, or to look outside yourself. We've talked about what happens when we do that, when we look for our power in race or nationality and how problematic that can be. Christianity teaches us to look for a power beyond ourselves that is within ourselves. The power of the Holy Spirit living within us. The power that we saw in Jesus Christ, not just as an example to teach us principles to learn, but as a power living within us to be our principal source of power. And the power of the Holy Spirit living within you is not dependent on the circumstances of this world 
because it is a power that created this world. And so it's not dependent on this world because it is the same power that created this world that lives in you. Think about that just for a moment. The power that put the stars in the sky is the same power that lives inside of you when you accept Jesus Christ and invite God to come into your life. We need this power because life will give us those times that are more than we could have imagined. And we need to know we can go through this. And we need to go through those times without turning against others. But learning to walk through even those difficult times, uh, loving others as Christ has loved us. We need these principles to guide us. And so many in our life live their life, in our time, live their life without principles. They uh, live their life just trying to get by to the next day, doing what seems good to them in the next moment, we need the Christian principles. The principles of forgiving as many times as we've been sinned against. The principles of turning to God rather than to ourselves for our power. Uh, The principles of seeking to use all our blessings to bless others. We need those principles, but we need more than that because life can deal you such a blow that it's hard to remember and follow those principles no matter how many Sunday school lessons you've heard about them. At this time as we are are going back to school we remember that the most powerful person in the school is the principal and so we need a principal in our lives not just principles we need the principal of the holy spirit living within us uh, giving us that strength when we don't have it within ourselves Charles Wesley wrote about this in one of his famous hymns. Charles was the brother of John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist revival movement back in the 1700s. And he wrote a hymn titled, I Want a Principle Within. And this hymn has a very interesting history between the brothers. It was generally the case that Charles would write the hymns, then John would edit the hymns, and they'd both get a cut of the money from publishing the hymns. But Charles was in an interesting situation at this time in life. He had a young lady he wanted to marry and he didn't have enough money. So he wrote a book of hymns and without asking his brother John, he published it. And his brother John was enraged and his fiance was very happy. And they were married and lived happily ever after. However, later John came back and edited this one. And in some of the edits that have been passed down to us, they took out the best verse. So if you see it in our hymnal, it has three. We're going to sing it in a few moments. It's going to have four. I want to read it to you. I want a principle within of watchly godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near. I want the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire. That's beautiful. Someone who recognizes his weaknesses says, God, when I'm turning away from you, I want to recognize it quickly. I want to I turn back to you. And then if you go to the last two verses, they're kind of triumphant. They talk about how God forgives uh, and then we're reconciled and we experience this beautiful life with God. They leave out the second verse. I want you to hear the second verse. I don't want you to leave today without knowing the second verse. If to the right or left I stray, that moment, Lord, reprove, and let me weep my life away for having grieved thy love. 
Give me to feel an idle thought as actual wickedness and mourn for the minutest fault in exquisite distress. I want you to know I went through exquisite distress this week trying to learn to pronounce exquisite distress uh, for you. But I really wanted to because I wanted us to look together at this beautiful articulation of a pure heart focused on God. Of not saying, Lord, I don't want to be like a 17-year-old guy who thinks he's invincible when it comes to my Christian walk. That's not who I want to be. If I'm turning away from you, I don't want to just be putting myself in a vulnerable position. I want to know it and I want to feel it and I want it to grieve me. I want to love you so much that it grieves my heart when I turn from you that in these words, I would weep my life away because I have rebelled against your love. I want that. That's a very different principle to live by than the principle we often live by, which is, God, I've really messed up. I'm going to lay out of church for a couple weeks. Hope you'll forget about it, and then I'll come back. That, but what would it be to turn to God with that sorrow in our, in our hearts? to have that life and to find our power in that principle. Because someone who can write those words has found a power even in their times of weakness and failure that will never let them down. The hymn goes on. From thee that I no more may stray, no more thy goodness grieve. Grant me the filial awe, I pray, the tender conscience give. Quick as the apple of an eye, O God, my conscience make. Awake my soul when sin is nigh and keep it still awake. Almighty God of truth and love, to me thy power impart. The mountain from my soul remove, the hardness from my heart. O may the least omission pain my reawakened soul and drive me to that blood again which makes the wounded whole. And drive me to that blood again which makes the wounded whole. That blood of Christ which in our moments of failure is more than enough to forgive us. Because it was more than enough to forgive Paul who was guilty of hate crimes. It was more than enough to forgive the soldiers who tortured him and the Jews who conspired against him. The Roman government which turned justice on its head to crucify him. The disciples who cowardly walked away from him. It was more than enough and it's more than enough for us. And that blood which is more than enough to tell us that whatever we go through in this life. We do not serve a God who is unfamiliar with suffering. We serve a God who is intimately acquainted with it, who has felt it in more pressure and intensity than we could ever imagine, and who has overcome it, who has conquered death, and tells of us of a kingdom where every tear will be wiped dry, where we will know God even as we are known, and we will see uh, our loved ones again. We serve that God. And we live within that power when we teach ourselves to pray, drive me to that blood again, which makes the wounded whole. Let's pray together. Gracious God, drive us to that blood applied on the cross outside Jerusalem, which makes the wounded whole. Each of us comes to you today wounded, wounded by our sin and our shortcomings, wounded by the difficulties and losses of life. And we believe that the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, has more than enough power to restore us and revive us. Grant us a pure heart that even in our seasons of sin and suffering, we might seek you. That we, O oh Lord, might grieve for having grieved you. That we, O oh Lord, in our suffering, might look to you 
for our strength and that we, O Lord, in our blessings might look to you that we might learn how to bless others who are suffering. We pray these things in your name, asking that you might lead us to go into this world as people who have found a power that can lead or guide us through all things. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. And we all said together, Amen. Amen.